in the bonus room, we finally get to composition, which is the other half of Jan's creative side. I'd like to talk about your composition, and I'd like to get into that by having you read the final excerpt, and this is from your book on Mozart, about writing, which is the most of the labor, labor of making art. Do you know that quote? Do you have that quote? If I could get to the file... <laughs> I don't, I don't read as well as you do. I, I can read it if you want, or if you can get the, yeah, the file. Yeah, go ahead, because I, we'd have to find it in the book, and uh, that could take a while. Okay, well, this... <laughs> it's not too long, I oh, No, it's not too long, and I don't read nearly as well as you, are, you do, so I'll do my best. <laughs> Bear with me. Okay, so, most of the labor of making art is done by the unconscious and by a well-trained intuition within the trance of creation. A work, then, is the tangible realization of the voice of the inner self, but the wild horses of imagination are reined in by knowledge, experience, skill, taste, judgment, second thoughts, inevitable human frailties and imperfections, the realities of instruments and players, and the acoustics and money, and that of the great and terrible world in general. That's a great <laughs> quote. <laughs> You're laughing at my reading. <laughs> no, I'm... I'm, I'm... I'm laughing because I really like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. I think that puts it, it, it puts it in a nutshell because these are the things that weigh on you as an artist, though they're not on your mind. If they were, you wouldn't be able to get a note or a board written. But there are all, all those are things that are aware. I mean, when you're composing, you have to know that's the acoustics and money and part, you know. What you're composing has to do with the, the ensemble you're writing for, and that sometimes has to do with the, um, what kind of budget there is, what the situation is. You have to be aware of the limits of, of players, the limits of, of and, and characteristics of instruments and players. And uh, My teacher at Yale, Jacob Druckmann, said something really interesting once. He said that when he started doing electronic music, one of the things that most excited him was that he said, I could... I could in an electronic studio, I could create the most complex rhythms uh, that I'd ever been able to do. And he did, and he discovered that it didn't sound like anything. And he said, what I realized was that I needed the effect of people trying to play complex rhythms because that's what gives it life. And, um, you know, the, the reality of players and acoustics and so forth, you may push them. I mean, you may write stuff that's really, really hard, and players like Beethoven's sopranos in the um, premiere of the Ninth Symphony were trying to get him to take down some of the high notes, and he wouldn't do it, and they just said, well, I guess we'll just have to keep on torturing ourselves for art. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think they, he couldn't hear it anyway, so I think they took some of the things down anyway. And I remember a great story that he went to a trombone player when he was working on, I think, the Mises Lemnus. And he said, I really want to find out what's, what's reasonable high notes for trombone. The guy told him, and he, and he, he ignored it. Wrote notes. <laughs> you know, one of the stories, just speaking of Beethoven, one of the stories that I loved, and I just love this passage anyway, not knowing the history behind it, but was in the sketch of the Fifth Symphony with the, with the bassist playing, bum, daga, daga, daga. And then it go, goes ahead. And it's a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. Yeah, I, I thought, gee, that's such great writing. But it was actually a joke because he thought bass players were basically, I guess bass players back then were like viola players today, perhaps. Well, the, people have been complaining about his bass parts. They were too hard. Yeah. And one of the reasons they were too hard is a guy he met early on was a, the great 
bass virtuoso, his name was Dragonetti, and Dragonetti could do anything. <laughs> Beethoven's, I think Beethoven's bass parts got a lot harder after he had that encounter with Dragonetti because, but most bass players weren't Dragonetti. <laughs> he was a famous bass soloist, which was a weird thing anyway. And um, Beethoven also had an, account, uh, an encounter with a horn player named Punto, who Mozart also knew and admired. And um, Beethoven got much more elaborate in horn parts after he met Punto, whereas he never met a virtuoso trumpet player, so his trumpet parts are actually kind of dull. Yeah, actually, that's true, yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure you know. Yes. Yeah, actually, do you, know, do you know the trumpet player Tim Morrison? He played with no. the Boston Symphony uh, for some years and with the Empire Brass Quintet. And then he came out to Los Angeles, and he became very well known as, for a while, he was, he was uh, John Williams' trumpet player for, for a lot of the, the movie scores that had big trumpet solos. And The Summon the Heroes was written for Tim Morrison and all of that. But when he first came out to Los Angeles, we played the Mrs. Solemnus together. And there was wow. one place where we had, it must have been 20 minutes rest, and then we just had one D in octaves. And, and, we, and we played that D in octaves. And it, I remember the trombone player, you know, put a thumbs up right in front of us. And Tim just fell out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, one, so one of the big things as a trumpet player playing Beethoven or Mozart is not to come in wrong. Because so. you've got to count all those rests. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's worse for the trombones, let's be Yeah, let's for be sure. Yeah, Because they hardly play at all, actually. Actually, I have to tell you, since you're a trombone player, you will enjoy this. And it has to do with Mozart, too. Years ago, I played, I, uh, a number of years, I, I played the Mozart Festival in San Luis Obispo. Um, and they did the Mozart Requiem. And it just turned out that, you know, there's a second um, trombone solo in the, the tuba mirum. And the first trombone is in alto clef, and the second is in tenor clef. No, I never, that's written for second trombone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I never realized that. Yeah, yeah. Because wow. they wanted an alto trombone. Yeah, yeah. And know, so, I mean, a tenor trombone. Yeah, yeah. And last minute, the conductor did not want the second player to play the solo. So he asked the first player to play the solo, who did not know the piece that well. He was more of a really great player, but uh, sort of a it commercial. It may have also been that the part is an alto clef. He played. He played the tenor. No, he played the tenor part in, in alto clef, or it was vice versa. But anyway, he played it in the wrong clef on the concert. <laughs> <laughs> and you should have seen. You should have seen the conductor. <laughs> I did an all brass concert at one point, and one of the trumpet players had never rehearsed one of the pieces. This was a thrown together group at Harvard, and um, he played the whole. He played a whole over. He played a whole um, fanfare in the wrong trans, transposition. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so the harmony was somewhat modern, but it became even more modern. Yeah, yeah. And I knew I, I, I was. I heard it. I just didn't knew there was nothing I could do about. it. I was conducting. Well, here just just quickly, Ron Kidd, who we had dinner with several years ago. Yeah. I first met Ron in the American Youth Symphony. I joined the American Youth Symphony, and Ron was conducted by Zubin Mehta's father, Maley Mehta. Wow. And Ron was first trumpet, and actually the first rehearsal I was fifth trumpet. Second rehearsal I was second trumpet because the other three guys didn't show up. And so uh, <laughs> maybe, and I was maybe 18 years old, something like that, 17 or 18. And maybe about three, three months in, 
to the season, there was a rehearsal where Ron wasn't there. And so I was just alone, played first trumpet. Just It was my first chance, right? And they were doing the Strauss uh, Horn Concerto Number 1. It starts with an E-flat chord. And it says trumpet in E-flat. I didn't see the flat. And, and I thought... <laughs> Okay, you know, I, I, I can't be, I have to be bold. And so I played a really loud E natural. And of course, then everybody started laughing. So <laughs> I guess those things happen. I, I lived in Boston in the early 70s with, and I had a, a roommate who was went going to conservatory. It was Jan Gippo, who ended up as piccolo player in the St. Louis Symphony. Oh, yeah, he, you've written pieces for him. Yes. Yeah. And um, this was an era of a trumpet dynasty. There was just this amazing series of trumpet players coming through students. James Thompson was one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you know Charlie Lewis, who ended up more of a jazz player. I know who he is, yeah. He he blew his lip, but he was a genius trumpet Mm -hmm. player until he blew his lip. Um, And one day, several of them showed up at the apartment and said, there's this freshman kid that is just going to... He is scary. Can I guess the name? (laughs) Yes. Ralph Smedvig? Ray Mace. Ray Mace. <laughs> I just talked to Ray Mace yesterday, and he's actually on the podcast. I interviewed him on the podcast. He's a hero of mine. He's a great guy. Jim Thompson said they were sitting together, and, and Mace said, I heard about circular breathing. What is that? And Jim explained it to him, so he said he just did it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's great. He, and he said, do you know Ray at all? He's had a fantastic career. Him. Yeah. Oh, of course he has. Yeah, yeah. I've never met Smedvig, but okay. Did Smedvig go to to NEC too? I believe he did. Yeah, and he ended up playing principal trumpet with the Boston Symphony for a couple oh, I know. of years. I know. Yeah, and yeah. was with the Empire Brass Quintet. Yeah, and, then and, then and Charlie was his second trumpet. Right, right, right. And Charlie was replaced by Tim Morrison, then who I mentioned uh, on the Beethoven, Mr. Salinas. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. a little bit of trumpet history there. Wow, that's great. Is that, about is that quintet still still playing? I don't believe they are. No, I think they've disbanded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they made some beautiful recordings early on there, yeah. some really great recordings. Well, during that Trumpet Dynasty, at one point, the Wend Ensemble did a, they had found a version of one of the, um, I think, four or five choir Gabrielli pieces with original ornaments written in. Hmm. And they played it, and it was one of the damnedest things you ever heard in your life. Um, but they had people like Jim Thompson and Charlie Lewis playing the Charlie Barnes. You could just reel off these 30-second yeah. notes. Jim is, is the professor at Eastman now. Oh, really? Yeah, for, for a number of years. He had, he's had a great career. He was um, principal in Atlanta for a number of years and then ended up being yeah, principal in Montreal with... Uh, I thought it was Toronto. At Montreal. Montreal. With Duteau, okay. yeah, yeah. Charlie I would Duteau. like to meet Jim again. He was an absolutely delightful guy. You should get in touch with him. Get, um, he's at, at Eastman. I'm sure just go on their Damn website. It, and, I was and there three years ago at, a, at an Ives and the slash Thoreau Festival, and I didn't know he was there. Oh, yeah, him. he's been there for quite a while now. Yeah, you should yeah. reach out to him. I think yeah, he'd, he'd I like think that. I will. Yeah. yeah. I know he'll remember me, and I'm still in touch with Jan Gippo. I mean, he and Jan Gippo and I were, and a few other people were just sort of the group. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah. Well, let me just ask a couple questions about your your composition. Somebody told me once that Debussy, when he would sign his scores, would would sign it Claude Debussy, Debussy, I think is how you pronounce it, um, French composer. Do you consider yourself to be an American composer? Because some of the works that I hear from you sound very American to me. Uh, It depends on the piece. But I think I'm an American composer anyway. You know, I used to say why... I like Ives so much. Why is he not? 
more influential on me. And there's lots of reasons for that, but then I got a commission from a string orchestra in Chattanooga, and I said, okay, I'm going to write a Chattanooga piece. What does that mean? Mountains and bluegrass and and hymns, Baptist church hymns. So that's the most, it's called from the in the shadow of the mountain, from the shadow of the mountain. <laughs> Actually, it was originally in the shadow of the mountain. I told it the conductor, he said, that sounds kind of depressing. I said, okay, how about in the shadow of the mountain? <laughs> From the shadow of the mountain. Anyway, I, that's the most I've seen piece I ever wrote, and it really is fiddle tunes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds very American, too. Oh, yeah. To me, yeah. yeah. But it's not something I try for, but I, I think it's just something I am. But I don't, I'm not a nationalist in the sense of being self-conscious about it at all. But I would expect it to be American in some way or other. But my influences are all over the place. I mean, I'm... I'm very much influenced by Indian music and Balinese music and blues and, and um, uh, you know, as well as the expected things, uh, Stravinsky and Bartok and so forth and so on. And I'll, t I'll tell you that I think what composing is these days um, is that there, there's, for a composer, there's the rubble of all past systems of music and composing lying around on the ground. Uh, in ruins, and you pick up bits and pieces of them and assemble a voice and a style and a technique. And that's the only choice you have. There's no other way to do it at this point, I think, because there's no more sense in any of the arts, really, of horizons the way there once were. I remember at one point, Berg wrote, soon it will be possible to write a chord of 12 notes. <laughs> and, and that's that's because he and Schoenberg and Webern thought relentlessly historically. Well, 12-note chords were written a long time ago, a long 50 or 60 years ago. Somebody first used white noise in music, which is theoretically all notes sounding at the same time, not just 12, but infinite number of notes. So ultimate harmonic density was achieved a long time ago, ultimate complexity, ultimate. There's no place to go in, in that historical sense anymore. And there hasn't been for a long time. And so art has to find a way to for artists to be individual and to have a voice. And I think individuality, rather than innovation, the idea of constant innovation and revolution, I think, is also just dead. Or it should it should be. and <laughs> should have been a long time ago. It, la it, had a, it had a good run. It produced some great stuff. But, you know, in graduate school in the 70s, I just saw all these artists and all the disciplines that I was hanging around with, running around trying to be little, what I called them was petite revolutionaries. <laughs> and I just thought it was nonsense because most of what they came up with was, was baloney. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, of, of you know, again, to me, what's important is how great is the music. So like you said earlier on, Brahms was looking backward. I mean, he used, um, you know, he wrote fugues, and, and fugue yeah. was sort of outdated then. He was and, criticized uh, for... He wrote the traditional genres, yeah. symphonies and fugues and string quartets and theme and variations. That's, when, that's what Wagner said, you know, when he played the Handel variations for Wagner, and Wagner was complimentary at the, at the moment, but what he was thinking was, gee, this kid's still <laughs> writing themes and variations. I mean, that's, that's, that's Haydn, for God's sake. Yeah. And, um, and he savaged him later, you know, in print, Wagner. But yeah, it doesn't make any difference if your stuff is good and if you have a voice. One of the remarkable things about Brahms was that he was one of the most eclectic composers who ever lived. 
he was using the past constantly in the forms, the harmonies, the, the assumptions, the counterpoint. He went back to Palestrina. He used Bach. I mean, he, 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 all this is a gigantic historical assemblage, which, interestingly enough, so is Vienna architecturally. That interested me. And yet Brahms has one of the most identifiable stylistic signatures of any composer. You know instantly when you're hearing Brahms. Uh, and so that's that's what it's all about. And as I, that's why I say he was a pedant of genius. <laughs> he was a backward-looking guy who created some really important ideas for the future, but I also don't think that's the most important thing. He wrote great stuff. That's what's important. I had never thought of it the way you put it. I, th I think it's great, Horizons. And I, I've just struggled with this idea, this sort of philosophical idea in terms of writing, conservative versus avant, let's say avant-garde, is that music through time, I guess you would say, has new horizons. You know, it's always going towards a new horizon. But we've arrived at a state now, a stage now, where maybe there are no new horizons. And some people are writing conservative, even tonal music, and other people are writing things that yeah. are extremely, um, let's say, far out or... I think that idea that New Horizons were what it's importantly, most importantly about in the arts, which a lot of people believed, I think that was dead a long time ago. A long time ago. I don't mean 100 years. I mean 30 or 40 years ago. Because the idea of constant New Horizons is just, it's like saying that you're thrashing into the wilderness and exploring the earth is the only thing that's really important. But sooner or later, we'll have explored everything. And then what? Yeah. Well, there's always the inner to explore, too, you know, which great music yeah, does. Yeah, and I, and I do think it's hard on art to give up that, that great dream of exploration and finding new things, but finding new voices will never stop, and finding new ways to express the human will never stop, and that's, we just can't be devoted to these old um, ideals that just don't make sense anymore. We have to accept. I, I've always said that I'm an as an artist, I'm an anarchist classicist. <laughs> <laughs> that I believe in a kind of classicism, which is trying to write pieces that sound natural in some way or other. But I'm kind of an anarchist in that I that I'm perfectly happy to be on my own and making up, finding my own technique and finding my own way, and not having any technique or theory telling me what what somebody's idea of is what I have I have to do as would have been the case until the 20th century with all composers. Ives, Charles Ives's father is the first person who ever said to anybody probably write any chord you want anything is allowable if you know what you're doing with it. Nobody had ever told anybody that before and that's one of the reasons Ives was who he was. You know speaking of his father there was one thing I was going to ask you and I totally forgot about it and maybe you could describe the scene because this is one of the saddest scenes in a book that I've ever read and it was the, the, the Charles Ives book and it was about his father who was the, the leader of the military band and it was the night before a battle and the north was on one side and the south was on the other side and the armies would have bands that would accompany men accompany them and they knew that they were going to just slaughter each other the next morning but that night they were playing i think both bands one band started playing home sweet home and the other band joined in on yeah. the other side they'd listen to each other's bands and they'd play back and forth yeah and then the next day they'd go out and just slaughter each other well that's the madness <laughs> that's but it's also the significance of that music which which george ives understood and imparted to charlie and that that's 
that understanding of the power of music, even very simple and sentimental popular tunes, what that means in the lives of real people is what George imparted to Charlie. It was the foundation of his music. You know, these simple little hymns, which aren't good music, but that's not what, that's not, as I've said, what does sound have to do with music? What music is about to eyes, and I think he's right, is what it does to the human heart and soul. And he's trying to somehow get that into his notes, and that's, that's what made his music unique. He's trying to use these simple tunes sometimes in, in, in his notes. What he does with them impart the deeper human spiritual reality beyond that, beyond the notes. As he said, you know, the idea that no, musical notes of a hymn represent what that hymn is about is like saying a man's necktie is what he's about. It's uh -huh. just the surface. Well, we started this interview, um, our conversation, with you talking about the Grand Canyon, your quote about the, the Grand Canyon, which I thought was so beautiful. Tell me a little bit about your hiking, or what? how does hiking, does hiking affect the way you write biographies yes. or words, or the way you write music? What do you get it from hiking? the way I write music. I don't think biography particularly, except that I picked up on the fact that landscape was very important to Brahms. Um, and when he went to the Isle of Rügen to finish the first symphony, it's it's apparently very craggy island, and uh, he wanted that in the music when he wrote the finale, I think. That was a conscious decision. Beethoven was the same. Beethoven, For Beethoven, nature was the visible scripture of God, um, the only scripture we have. Mozart was almost entirely oblivious to nature, so... Um, as a composer, you can see in my music and the titles, Landscape of Traveler, Midsummer Variations, uh, From the Shadow of the Mountain, a lot of them have to do with nature. And there are times when I've really tried to duplicate something that I saw. I, 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 the end of my orchestra piece, Landscape of Traveler, came from sitting on Mount Manfield in Vermont, looking at the at the lines of the hills below me and realizing that they were counterpoint. And the end was an attempt that didn't work, but so it's an interesting <laughs> attempt to, to reproduce that kind of counterpoint. Um, there's another effect in that same piece when I was hiking in Vermont again in, in autumn and I walked around a corner in a trail and before me was this unbelievable, I'd never forgotten that hillside and absolutely full autumn colors. It was just one of the most dazzling things I'd ever seen and I tried to duplicate that and sound, translate that into sound in the same piece and it didn't work either but it's still an interesting moment. I, I'd, I've never tried to do anything that literal with nature before but nature to me is the great because as a hiker, I experience nature in, in time and space. You know, I'm moving. And Grand Canyon is a good example of that. You're moving through a sometimes this titanic landscape that only slowly changes as you walk. You're seeing the same things, but, but they're, it's gradually changing, and that's, that's music. That's musical. Yeah. I've, I'm a hiker, too, and, and uh, I did hike one week in the Grand Canyon, but I've hiked a lot in the High Sierras, the John Muir Trail. Mm. And there's a wonderful quote from John Muir, who was actually a very religious man. 
And this one sentence that he wrote is, the hills and groves were God's first temples, and the more they are cut down and hewn into cathedrals and churches, the farther off and dimmer seems the Lord himself. That's great. I think that's a really beautiful, a beautiful way of putting things. And he was one of those people who believed that nature was the true scripture, the real, you know, the real manifestation of God. And that's what Beethoven believed. And that's sort of what I believe, except that I'm not, I'm an agnostic, so... I'm okay with mystery. I'm okay not having any theories about the unexplainable. I mean, to me, there are three great things in the world, in the human spirit. There's science, which is what we can learn with the limited means at our disposal that we can be fairly sure of. There's religion, there's art, which is a kind of combination of science and religion. Um, and then there's religion, which is about what we don't know and we can't know. So we have to let that be taken care of by belief. And those are the three great spiritual forces. And they should not be competitive, but they're often presented that way, but they aren't. They're complementary. Well, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. <laughs> <laughs>